This is The Guardian. Today, from pollution to the police, the Mayor of London talks to us about his plans to clean up the city. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. He's been on a journey from petrol head to climate campaigner, Labour MP to the Mayor of London. A smile and a wave that said it all. It was clear Sadiq Khan had won well before it was officially confirmed. Eventually, at gone midnight, Sadiq Khan had his moment. I'm so proud that London has today chosen hope over fear and unity over division. In the seven years since Sadiq Khan took office, he's endured racist trolling, death threats, even a feud with Donald Trump. Trump was similarly outspoken about London Mayor Sadiq Khan after he said Trump's views on Muslims were ignorant. He doesn't know me, never met me, doesn't know what I'm all about. I think they're very rude statements uh, and frankly, tell him I will remember those statements. I think it's ignorant for him to say that. Nonetheless, he steered the city through multiple terror attacks, through a pandemic, and a near-bankrupt transport network. He is slick, a political operator with a familiar backstory. I was born here, on this council estate. My dad was a bus driver on the 44 route from Victoria to Tooting Broadway. My mum worked as a seamstress. But his politics have now become personal. Sadiq Khan developed breathing problems after training for the London Marathon, and he's now on a mission to clean up London's toxic air. It's become a controversial sticking point. Some voters are furious about his environmental policies. Others say he doesn't go far enough. And now Khan has written a book, laying out his plans to tackle the climate emergency. I think clean air is a human right, not a privilege. And why should I breathe cleaner working in central London, whereas those in outer London don't? Will it be enough to win him a third, unprecedented term running the city he loves? From The Guardian, I'm Noshin Iqbal. Today in Focus, Sadiq Khan is betting his career on a green gamble. Will it pay off? Sadiq Khan, your new book is called Breathe, Tackling the Climate Emergency. But you haven't always been a climate activist, have you? So look, I'm somebody who, before I was a member of parliament, was a lawyer. And when I first became a salaried partner, I was about 26, 27, I negotiated not a higher pay rise, but a car parking space for the car I had then, which was a, a lovely black Saab convertible. 
leather interior. <laughs> and then and then when Anissa was born, our eldest, from the Saab, I got a Land Rover Discovery. Um, and when I was a parliamentarian uh, and I was a minister, I supported and I voted for a third runway at Heathrow. And the reason why, you know, I'm telling you this, I want you to understand the transition and the journey that I've been on. I'm somebody who, even though I thought I was reasonably knowledgeable and knew my stuff, thought climate change and air pollution was an issue for tomorrow, you know, 20, 30 years' time, but also an issue for people elsewhere. Mm. So people in the global south, sub-Saharan Africa, those in Bangladesh, not realising, and again, I've got to confess until it affected me, that actually all of us have skin in the game. Uh, And for me, it was, as you know, eventually being diagnosed with asthma. Well, can you tell me just a little bit about that moment? So it's the diagnosis of asthma that actually really wakens you up and makes you think... We need to do something about this. Yeah, so in 2014, uh, I was asked by the Evening Standard to run the London Marathon to raise money for charity, uh, ostensibly because Ed Balls had said no. I, I, w- I was Ed Balls's rejects, right? But but also, really important cause, raising money for the Dispossessed Fund. Uh, you know, and so I agreed to do the marathon. So I had a full medical and, you know, the doctor, Dr. Tom Coffey, passed me off very fit. So I knew I was in good health when mm. I began training eight weeks training, did the marathon, you know, beat Ed Balls, um, a very important, important, factor. important factor to the story. Raised lots of money, but, but a few weeks and months later, I noticed I wasn't feeling great. So if you and I were talking in 2014, I'd be clearing my throat three, four times already. But also when I was playing football with my mates, when I did a five or 10 meter sprint, I'd be out of breath. So uh, wheezing a bit. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Which I never experienced before. And also going for a jog, I'd be, I'd be wheezing after three, four Okay, and so eventually towards the end of 2014, I went to see the GP and the specialist diagnosed adult onset asthma, which, you know, I couldn't believe that I had asthma. And then I started to find out more about what causes asthma, what causes adult onset asthma. And what was, what made me angry, but also was heartbreaking was me doing something I enjoyed running in the city that I love had made me sick. And so I, that began my journey to find out a bit more about what causes air pollution. And that's when I discovered the same thing that causes air pollution causes climate change. Well, Sadiq, you've said that making London a green city is your main priority. And part of that focus comes from inspiration you've drawn from Rosamond Kissy Deborah. Her daughter Ella was just nine years old when she died from high levels of air toxicity. Hers is the first recorded death directly linked to air pollution. How much has the quality of air we're breathing actually improved since you've become mayor seven years ago? Is it actually safe? So Rosamond deserves huge credit for the improvements we've seen in air in London. Uh, and just for those of your you know, listeners who don't, who don't know, Ella was diagnosed with asthma when she was seven. Very serious asthma. She passed away, unfortunately, when she was nine in 2013. And Rosamond had lots of questions about why her daughter had passed away. The cause of death was an asthma attack. But Rosamond wasn't content with that. And so she discovered that actually on the days when Ella had had asthma attacks and had really bad health conditions, those are the same days where there's bad traffic and bad air pollution outside of home and in parts of London. So you could draw a graph, bad air pollution and Ella having poor health and she eventually lost her life. And Rosamond campaigned for a second inquest. And at the second inquest, history was made because the coroner said that air pollution was, was a causal factor. And so we thought, what can we do to clean the air in London? Because the previous mayor had had a report that showed in 2013, incidentally, that more than 400 schools in London were in parts of our city where the air was unlawful. And he'd buried that report away. And so the first thing that that I did when I became mayor is I said, look, if someone like me doesn't know how bad things are, we've got to make sure that we educate Londoners in an unpatronising way how bad things are. So for the first year, 
with air quality monitors all across our city to measure the air in real time how bad things are. And that was important because we needed Londoners' permission for bold policies. And that led to the bold policy in 2017 we announced called the Ultra Low Emission Zone. Mm. And the reason I'm, uh, you know... We are going to come on to that. But, but the reason I explain that is in, so in two years, that policy, you mentioned how good the air is. In two years, we managed to reduce the toxicity in the central city by 50%. So that's the difference we've made. And is that pre-pandemic stats? And what are we talking about now at this point, post-pandemic, let's say? What are we looking at stats-wise from when you came in as mayor to where we are now in terms of air quality? Nitrogen oxide is down, particulate matter is down, carbon emissions are down. That's the good news. The bad news is health experts say there is no safe level of air pollution. Mm. And so the reason why that's important to the story is, yes, according to the government criteria, we've made massive progress. According to the World Health Organization criteria, no level of air pollution is safe, so we've got much more to do. And the thing that really motivates me is, yes, big improvements in central London and in London. In outer London is where the worst air is and where most older people live and mm. two-thirds of our city's asthma sufferers live in outer London, which is why I'm planning to expand the ultra-limited zone to outer London. Well, that brings us quite neatly on to that most significant intervention you've made on air pollution, which is the ultra-low emission zone, ULES. At the moment, that means that people driving the most polluting cars or lorries have to pay £12.50 a day if they're within the north and south circular roads. From August, it will apply to all London boroughs. Now, the Liberal Democrats have said this is targeting some of the poorest people in Greater London. Those who can't afford to replace their vehicles all pay £12.50 a day. So how do you justify that during a cost of living crisis? Well, firstly, look... Uh, the decision to expand ULES wasn't an easy one, but I think clean air is a human right, not a privilege. The second issue is we've made sure that we've got the biggest scrappage scheme of, of any city in the country. And the reason why the scrappage scheme is important is for the reasons you said, because during a cost of living crisis, we've got to be helping those families, those businesses, those charities make what the experts called, inverted commas, a just transition, supporting mm. them, mm. making the transition. But here's the point. The issue of air pollution is the issue of social justice. It's those Londoners least likely to own a car suffer the worst consequences. Half of our city don't own a car. Yeah. 70% of uh, those who earn less than £10,000 don't own a car, but they're breathing in the poison from others that do. But new data suggests that one in six cars will actually not be ULES compliant. And this is outside, this is the greater London borough. I'm astonished the Guardian's using dodgy stats. Dodgy uh, stats? Let me, let, me, let me just challenge your dodgy stats. Go on stats. then, tell us, tell us what you uh, think the level so, of cars so we, so we So we have automatic number plate recognition cameras across London. Uh, and that's the most advanced way to tell how many non-compliant vehicles there are. To give you an idea of the progress we've made, when I first announced this policy, only 39% of our vehicles in London, 39% were compliant. Last year, that went up from 39% to 94% are compliant. So 94% of vehicles in inner London are compliant. In outer London, it's more than 90% are compliant now, which means less poison being churned out. But to help those one out of 10 in outer London who still drive a pollution vehicle, we're given the £110 million scrappage scheme. And the good news is, is the figures are going up all the time in relation to those who are driving a compliant vehicle or getting rid of their non-compliant vehicle. But I accept... There are some people who are struggling, which is why I've announced this massive scrappage scheme. Just to note that our figures do come from the Society of Motor Manufacturers and Can Traders. I explain that? Can I explain why Not, figures are dodgy? Which is slightly different from yeah, ANPR. Let, let, let me explain why your figures are dodgy. You keep saying uh, dodgy. I don't, I mean, it's a matter of interpretation, but let's... let's... So, so you, the figures that you've quoted are figures for vehicles registered last year. Mm. 
a lot of vehicles are registered in one place but driven in another place. So the, the more accurate figure, which is what we've been using since 2017, is the vehicles driving around London, whether it's central London, in London, or out London. At, in London that you won't catch on those cameras every single day. Not everyone drives in because and out of London. Because they're not used in London. So, so you may have family in Birmingham, but you, you bought the car registered to your name, but the car's driven in Birmingham, or it could be in the home counties. The accurate figure is those driving vehicles. We've gone back a year. So if mm. you've not driven your car in out of London for the last year, I'd suggest you're unlikely to drive the car in out of London over the next year. So those are the accurate real-time figures. And that shows 39% vehicles you know, that were compliant in 2017, now 94%. And in out of London, 90%. We want to go even further because it's those people who don't own the car who are breathing the poison from those that do. Okay. Well, Arguably, some people would say if you do want to stop people driving and for there to be less car congestion and pollution in the capital, you need to provide people with accessible, affordable, safe public transport. But it's not, is it? It's not affordable and it's quite Crikey. catchy. It's should, not so, affordable. I want, I want you to speak to some of your listeners outside London. London has the cheapest bus fares in the country. Bus fares, yes. But a single, an average tube journey is about nine quid in a day. And that's that's high. You're talking about the cap. Isn't it? So the great thing in London we have, which other parts of the country don't, is an unlimited cap. So we've got the most sophisticated fare system in the country and arguably in Europe. What that means is it's pay as you go, but there's a cap. The bus fares in London are cheaper than the rest of the country. We have that the much 9, we know, 000. but then fares across the network have well, increased well, by five point nine percent. Yeah, because there was a government condition. You asked the question, so let me answer the question. Sure. So, in my first five years as mayor, because I believe in public transport, I'm not sure if you know, but my dad was a bus driver. <laughs> I've never heard that I one before. I, you know, I'm a bit shy talking about it. So, so it's, it's quite personal to me. So, the first five years that I was mayor, I froze fares. Right. Mm. The beautiful thing about freezing fares is more people use public transport. So it yeah. raised, brought more money in for us. Right. It's not rocket science. It's basic economics. What happened was in the pandemic mm. and our fares income plummeted. And so we needed support from the government and the government attached a number of strings to the support they gave us. One yeah. of the strings was they dictate the fares for London. The good news is from next year, for the first time in TFL's history, we will not be reliant upon uh, support from the government. The only transport authority in the world not getting an operating grant from the government. And when that happens, I can then be in charge of our fares again. And you, you know my record in relation to freezing fares for five years. Let's see what I do next year. personal level you do now understand how real the climate emergency is and during your time in office groups like extinction rebellion insulate britain and just stop oil have massively grown public awareness of the climate crisis do you understand why they need to make the sort of short-term disruption they do so i'm just as passionate about tackling the climate emergency you know as many people who join these pressure groups and i think it's one of the joys of our society is pressure groups protests, demonstration, petitions, uh, lobbying, they play a really important role in our society. And we should encourage people across the country not to be passive consumers, but to be active citizens. All I'd say to those protesting is, you know, in my view, uh, you should protest in a way that's peaceful, lawful and safe. Because what we want to do is two things. One is encourage people to join the cause of tackling climate change. But two, what we don't want is inadvertently, you know, you being arrested and having a criminal record because you're breaking the law. You say that, but then, you know, it takes a a level of radical action for that issue to be on the agenda. And, you know, let's take the public order bill, which has granted the police extensive new powers to patrol protests. As we saw at the coronation, that can mean people are arrested for having the equipment to potentially lock on. I mean, overall, ultimately, the effect is really chilling on protest. You know this, you're a former human rights lawyer. Does it mean that you'll lobby Keir Starmer to repeal that law? 
I think Section 2 of the new Act has got real problems in relation to uh, locking on. So I don't think you repeal the entire Act. What you try and do is when you bring in new legislation, you remove certain sections of that Act. So what normally happens when there's but a new not? government... But, but do you find it acceptable to extend There are parts powers? of the Act that I support. I support the part of the Act which deal with protecting national infrastructure. So if you What repeal, does that mean exactly? So, there, there are, so, you know, if, for example, protesters decided to strip off naked and go on the M25, they're risking their lives, but also there's a core piece of national infrastructure. There are parts of the Act that I think, you know, are there for a reason, that are proportionate and balanced. There are parts of the Act that I don't support. The point being is, listen, it's really, it's really easy to say, why isn't Keir Starmer promising to repeal the Act? Well, there's a very good reason why you don't repeal Acts. One is, you know, there's, there's limited parliamentary time. Secondly, if you repeal entire Acts, you get rid of any good sections in the Act, uh, as well as the bad sections you don't like in the Act. So what I'm more in favour of is when it comes to there being a new Labour government. And by the way, there's only going to be a new Labour government if people, you know, support for support the Labour government. The choice will be Sunak or Starmer, not, not you know, Starmer or, or your perfect, you know, left of centre, progressive PM. It's those two, right? Um, will be pass a new piece of legislation to, to deal with some of these issues and repeal those parts of acts that we don't like. We've talked briefly about the public order bill, and I wonder how comfortable you are giving those extensive powers to a police force that is in special measures. Successive official investigations have found that it's institutionally racist, misogynist, homophobic. Do you really think the Met should be trusted with those new powers? Well, firstly, the new powers are given by Parliament, not by me. So it's really important to distinguish the two things, you know, and I would have voted against the 23 Public Order Act that's just been passed, as indeed did the Labour Party. But what's at the core of, of your question is a really important issue to me, which is how the police are policed. Uh, and in a democracy, I think it's perfectly possible to say we support the police, we need the police, but there needs to be proper checks and balances and the police need to be held to account, particularly in the context of Dame Louise Casey finding the police to be institutionally racist institutionally misogynistic and institutionally homophobic. So I fully accept the anxiety and concern that many Londoners have uh, in relation to increased police powers. And by the way, this is an issue for the entire country. It's just that a sunlight has been spotted on the Met Police Service, so we know more about the Met Police Service. But I think the public should be asking those questions. Parliamentarians should be asking those questions in relation to, uh, you know, who pleases the police, the checks and balances, at a time where the police are getting more powers. Let me put this another way. So at the moment, the Met is investigating more than 1,000 of its own officers on allegations of sexual and domestic violence, which is diabolical. And, you know, you appointed Mark Rowley as a new commissioner in September. He says he's got a two-year turnaround plan. Are you confident he will deliver the radical reform the Met needs and not just pay lip service to it? What he's doing is going back to see whether, you know, any uh, you know, officer against him action should have been taken, wasn't taken. And that's what's leading to a situation where in the last six months, more officers have been kicked out of the police service than any time in the previous history. But also he sped up the discipline process as well. But Sir Mark needs time. This was a problem decades in the making. Stephen Lawrence was murdered 30 years ago. McPherson came out 25 years ago. So, you know, Sir Mark needs time with his deputy commissioner, Dame Lynn, to turn things around. How much time are you giving him? I mean, if, if in two years he hasn't delivered what he's promised, would you dismantle the Met? I think he needs at least two years to deal with these issues. One of the things that Dame Louise Casey talked about, which I, which I accept, is, you know, the Met should be given time. But if it's the case, after a period of time, there aren't the improvements we need to see and Londoners deserve, then all options should be on the table. The option you're referring to is the one that will happen in Northern Ireland because of the concerns around the Troubles mm. and so forth, the lack of confidence, particularly the Catholic community had in uh, Is that Northern a realistic Ireland. option for you? You know, I'm hoping the next Prime Minister is Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer's talked about it. Keir spent a lot of time in, in Northern Ireland uh, as well. I'm hoping we don't get there. But it's really important for you know us to realise that, you know, Dame Luce Casey didn't rule out 
that needing to happen if there wasn't progress. There are, there are arguments against that, by the way, as well. But the point being is we've got to give Sir Mark time if after a period of time there isn't the change that we think is requisite, required and so forth. Yeah, all options on the table. Okay. Well, you've written about your own two daughters and their friends not necessarily feeling safe around the police or when they're out and about on public transport. You did promise in 2018 with your transport strategy that the night tube would be extended. That hasn't happened. We're not quite there yet. There's a a pandemic in between, to be fair to, to, to me. But getting around the city at night can still be perilous, particularly for a young woman, well, for any women. But how do you feel people are supposed to get home safely in the early hours of the morning if they don't have a car, if they can't afford a taxi? One of the things that I've tried to do, both as an MP and a mayor, is to try and walk in the shoes of others. And so a number of things we've got to do to address what, in the words of Her Majesty's Inspectorate, is a national epidemic of violence against women and girls across our country. So in primary school, it'll be teaching our boys about healthy relationships, how to respect girls, how to treat girls. I think misogyny should be a hate crime. We should make the sexual harassment of women in a public place a criminal offence. And then it comes to public transport, public realm design, so police you're and so forth. So you longer-term strategies to re-educate No, we did now. Men. We did now. So in the last year, we released just a simple thing we can do, which is making a big difference. We released a video called Have a Word, which was aimed at men, because men got to change their behaviour, not women. So in relation to public transport, simple things you can do in public transport, making sure there are staff available at stations, making sure there are CCTV on platform, making sure we invest in police officers and British transport police and so forth. But it's really hard when there's been austerity for 13, 14 years because we've lost more than a billion pounds from the policing budget. We've lost significant sums from the TfL uh, budget. Councils are really struggling so they can't afford the right street lights and all the rest of it and stuff. So the design phase is incredibly important in relation to designing out crime, well-lit streets you know, open spaces, making sure there aren't blind corridors and so forth to make, you know, London safer for women. Coming up, are rent controls the answer to London's housing problem? Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist 
and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. So the, the London mayoral elections are happening next year and you'll be running for a third term. You've been in the job for seven years and in that time we've gone from this argument of London not being affordable for the nurses, the cleaners, all the rest of it. And now the argument is that it's not affordable for doctors, teachers. The inequality has become much starker. Why has that happened on your watch? So uh, I appreciate you've been playing devil's advocate, but the housing crisis didn't begin seven years ago. So the housing crisis has been decades in the uh, But the inequality the feels a lot starker now. Yeah, playing Richie Sunak and Liz Truss and Boris Johnson and David Cameron and, and uh, all, all that lot. We've had austerity for 13 years. Of course, inequality is more stark. The, the key thing is this, look, for decades now, the supply of new homes in our city is not met with the demand. So when I became mayor, uh, the number of new social rent homes in the pipeline in the year before I became mayor was three. Not mm. 3,000, not 303. In the last seven years, we've now started 116,000 genuinely affordable homes. I ditched the dodgy division of what an affordable home is. It's not half a million pounds to buy or 80% of market value. It's a council home. It's home you pay London rent, third of average earnings or shared ownership part by part rent. The number of completions in the last seven years of homes is the highest it's been since the 1930s. More council homes anytime since the 70s. But it's going to take us some time. And that's why I'm saying because we're not going to have supply meeting demand for some time, we've got to fix the rental market. Mm. We've got to be freezing rents like then in Scotland well, and, and giving the powers to bring in rent controls. At the moment, that picture still leaves millions of people who can't afford to buy their own homes, who are having to rent at extortionate prices. 2.7 million. So 2.7 million Londoners are living in private accommodation. Just think about that. 2.7 million Londoners who the landlord can, at a whim, can you know give them an eviction uh, notice or the house being disrepaired. What I'm saying to the government is, look, with the best one in the world, and the same applies to, you know, if Keir Starmer becomes the prime minister, with the best one in the world in the short to medium term, we're not going to have the supply of homes. It takes four years, roughly speaking, to build the home. So let's try and fix the rental market to give people security, okay. but also affordability. And your proposal is bringing in rent controls in London, but the government would have to approve that measure. So what are the chances of them doing that? Well, the same thing was said in relation to when I lobbied the government a few years ago to get rid of the fees tenants paid to a agent. Even this government listened to that, got rid of that. I also lobbied the government some years ago to get rid of Section 21, the no-fault evictions. Gove has now agreed to uh, do that. The Scottish government lobbied for many, many years to bring in rent freezes. They said no. Last year they agreed to do that. So first, look, if this government doesn't do it, well, there's a general election next year. We can vote out this lot and bring in a government that hopefully will do it. Are what you I'm hearing to, positive noises from Keir Starmer's camp about whether they'd approve this? Well, look, there's 18 months probably until the next general election. The key thing for people like me and others in, in the Labour movement is to try and influence the Labour manifesto, right? Because we've got to make sure that we have a process of policy making that addresses some of the challenges we face. But the example you gave is really important. If you and I were speaking 10 years ago, you're spot on. We'd be saying bus drivers can't afford to live in London, cleaners can't afford to live in London. And you're spot on. Uh, you know, it's people, not just them can't afford to live in London, but teachers, journalists, uh, you know, police officers and so forth. And that, that is a problem for us, not just because of the brain drain, but because people are travelling an hour and a half each way to get to work. That's just not sensible. Well, we did an episode recently about how the city is hollowing out and there's new waves and new kinds of gentrification, starting with schools closing down in inner cities. You know, what's being done there? You said you didn't want London to become a playground for the rich. Arguably, we are already there. Well, the good news is that population's growing. I could mention cities, I'll do it off air because I don't want to offend 
mayors of other cities around the Europe who are my friends. But other cities are having population declines. London isn't. That population is going up. That's a sign of people wanting to live here, which is very important. What we've seen, though, is because of inverted commas gentrification, because of pandemic to some extent, some of the communities that were incredibly diverse socioeconomically are less diverse socioeconomically. And that's why affordable housing is really important because the joy of affordable housing, I know it's from personal experiences, you can go to school with somebody whose parents are doctors, somebody whose mm. parents are you know, cleaners, somebody whose parents are bus drivers. And that's the joy of London, that diversity in socioeconomic means. We lose that at our peril. So how would the prospect of a Labour government change or turbocharge what you do with the city? Will you become more radical? So, so one of the things that's been really difficult for me is having a government throughout my tenure that's been, in my view, anti-London. I, I'm so excited about the prospect of a Labour government. What motivates me is what I call the London promise. And the London promise is very simple, and it's something that my family benefit from. You work hard, you get a helping hand, and you can achieve anything. My problem is that helping hand isn't there for so many Londoners. And what I want is a Labour government to be working with me to provide the helping hand. So looking at the next mayoral election, who do you think your competition lies with? Who are the main opponents? It doesn't matter who the opponent is. I've got a job to try and persuade Londoners that I'm the better candidate. But here's the thing. For the last, you know, 23 years in London, we've had these elections. A Tory has either won the election or come second. Mm. So the contest, I say this with all due respect to people who vote Lib Dem or vote Green, is the Tories have changed the rules now. They've changed it to a first-past-the-post system. So the only people that can win the next election is me or the Tory. And so what I'd say to your listeners who may be flirting with Greens or the Lib Dems, if you're going to be the Tory, vote oh. for me. I promise I've got a final, final fun question for you. So that we've talked a lot about what a difficult city London can be to live in. but It's a wonderful city to live in. It can be a grind. I mean, it's amazing, but it, it can be difficult. We'll speak offline and I'll, I'll have a word with you about that. What makes it a fun place to live for you? Forget each different day is different. Each hour can be different in London. You know, so the joy of London is is literally the, the fact that, you know, you, you don't know what to expect. Your tube journey to work, your bus journey to work, your walk to work. But what are you enjoying? What do you what do you do in your week? I want to know what, what are you doing making most of London? So tonight I'm going to the Kill to see a great play about... Oh, uh, I saw it yesterday. ...about Sydney Potty. Is any it's good? great. It's really good. So I'm looking forward to seeing Sydney Potty tonight. I'm going to Neeson Temple tomorrow, one of the best attractions of our city. Playing football on Sunday as I do on a Sunday, trying to stay uh, fit. So, by the way, for those that don't know, we're, we're having this recorded in the Guardian HQ in, uh, you know, King's Cross. You know, the yard outside is just gorgeous now. The canal is great as well. So, so if, I get time, if I get time before my next interview, I'll tr- try and do a bit of, um, enjoy the, the beams by the canal. Sadiq, thank you so much. Lovely talking to you. That was the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. His book, Breathe, is out now, and you can also read an interview with him by Simon Hattonstone, which I would urge you to do. It's titled, I lost my mojo. I wasn't so sparky. Without a doubt, I was suffering with PTSD. And you can find that all at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. I'm Nasheen Iqbal. This episode was produced by Natalie Katena, Lucy Hoff, and Hannah Moore. Additional research by Thomas Glasser, Sound designed by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Huma Khalili. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.